think at times felt like that broken down house we saw a picture of earlier. Just the destructive forces of this world leaving us with an insecure foundation and all kinds of issues and mental struggles, physical struggles. And then here we are, we find that, God, we don't even know how to fix ourselves. But in that very moment, it's when your spirit blows in, this time not with destruction, but with love. And even if sometimes you have to to rip some things apart in our lives in order to put it back together more whole, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and do that within our lives. Why? Because we trust your love for us that you are for us, that you are seeking our best. And so we invite you, God, to come, say, do whatever you want within our lives. Because even if it's painful and even if it's scary and even if it means taking down several layers of siding, God, we know that ultimately it is all so that we might be healed and made whole. So we trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may have a seat. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for leading us into that. Thank you, Michael. All right, so we're, we're back in 1 John. And uh, if you've been studying it with us for a while, I mean, you probably, hopefully, have seen uh, a central theme start to grow over time. So if you've been looking through this, this book with us, this letter in the New Testament, have you been able so far to pick up on what some of the, the central questions are? Because if you're, if you're reading it through the first time, sometimes First John is a little confusing at first because there's a lot of similar themes that keep cycling through as you're reading it, leaving you sometimes a little bit dizzy. But ultimately what John is doing is he's from multiple angles, he's addressing a central question, which is something like this. How can we know that we belong to the truth? Or put another way, how can we know that the life of Christ is within us? How can we know that we are truly children of God? And so in his own beautiful and unique way, John keeps coming at those questions over and over until we have this assurance, this certainty by faith in who we are, whose we are, and what that means for our lives and our relationships. But, As we dig in today, I want you just to think for yourself for a moment. How would you say we can know whether the life of Christ is in someone? What what would you say would be the, the evidence or the telltale signs that someone belongs to Christ and is sincere about it? Now, I guarantee there's a bunch of different ways we can answer that question. But for me, I grew up in church. Immediately, this old school song comes to my head. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our what? Love. Come on, everybody. Did, did that song bring anybody else back? I, it, it totally brings me back. And I, I, like, I don't even know if I like the song, but like, it immediately gets stuck in my head. And I think even, interestingly, even those who are not Christians know Christians and love should go hand in hand. And whether fairly or unfairly, we often criticize Christians for it when we don't. But there's something inherent that we know this is the way that it should be. But I've learned 
it's very easy to criticize somebody for not loving, but to actually love like Jesus, not so easy. And I learned this early on, and that I, when I started getting serious about my faith, it was maybe around middle high school, I was gung-ho. And early on, I noticed this pattern starting to develop in my life, that I would, I would go to church, and I would, I would hear about Jesus, I would feel the love, and then I'd go right out of church, riding the spiritual high, loving everybody around me for like a few hours. <laughs> right? And then before you know it, just kind of back to however I operated before. Uh, one summer, I went on this four-day youth retreat. And man, I came back just on fire. I came back like this golden child. Just riding this high, this feeling of love. I started doing the dishes for my parents every night. I started serving them. I was even nice to my sister. And again, lasted for a week. And then I was right back to just doing what I wanted to do. Just living for myself until the spiritual high wore off. Because I knew, even early on, I knew that if I was going to follow Jesus, that that meant also loving people. But I learned rather quickly that consistently loving other people is not so easy. And that became confusing. Because I was like, well, if I belong to Jesus, shouldn't just loving other people just feel natural all the time? Shouldn't this just be simple, easy? Shouldn't it just come to me like, like, like this feeling? Because talking about love feels good. And that talking about it is easy. But at the end of the day, after I come home from work, long, stressful day, and my kids are all talking to me at the same time, like talk about loving then? Or talk about loving on the days that I do something for somebody and they don't see me. They don't thank me. Or frankly, they don't deserve it. Or it comes at a personal cost. Or what about loving people when we're not feeling the love? Well, our passage today starts in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. And he starts with, listen, you've heard this from the beginning. You guys get this. You know this. We should love one another. No surprise there. I doubt anybody here is arguing with what John is saying. But easier said than done, John. And I think he anticipates that. Which is why he then goes in and he says, well, let me show you what real love is. What loving people really looks like. And three... Reminds it, where do we learn to love like that? So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24 today, which is page 987 in those blue Bibles in front of you. If you want to turn there or open your Bible app or your own Bibles, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. I think we all know in here that we like, should love. But the question that I want us to look at today is, what does that mean and where do we even start to learn how to consistently love like Jesus loves us? All right, so 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11. As he said, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We all get this. We all know this. We should love one another. Then he said, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. But this is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. But dear friends, if, you, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So Holy Spirit, the one who is with us, come mold, shape, lead us in the way of love and the way of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. All right, before we unpack this together, let's, let's go back again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. You heard it from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, looking at that verse again, how does that initially hit you? For some people, like, oh man, I love talking about love. Let's go. For others, preach it, pastor. They need to hear this. All right, and for others of us, like immediately this verse hits us like a weight of guilt. A weight of guilt because we're like, ah, I'm trying here, but I'm exhausted. Or I don't know how. Or honestly, like, I just don't want to. <laughs> I, I'd much rather just do what I want to do today. And before we talk about what love looks like, let's first talk about what love is. When John says, love one another, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to love? Well, if I can simplify it without watering it down, to love someone else is to seek their best even when it costs us. To love someone else is to seek their best, even when it costs us. Out of all the words today, I think arguably the word love is most confusing. Because I use the word love to describe that deep bond I feel with my family and how I feel about the pumpkin pie from Costco. Like, so good, so good. When we use the word love in weddings... And to describe how we feel about that new show on Netflix. Like we hear phrases like love is love or love is forever until it's not anymore. And then clearly we throw this word love around in so many ways. But, but John isn't primarily talking about a feeling we get from something or a feeling for someone. But for him, love is a way of living, treating, being in relationship with God and with each other. But to clear this up, before John explains what love is, he says, let me show you what the opposite looks like. And the opposite of love is doing what serves us, even when it's at the expense of others. Now to illustrate this, John says, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's find a guy named Cain. And he says in verse 12, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Again, Murder, not love. I think none of us are arguing there. But like, the question that John wants us to think through is, well, what drove Cain? Well, if you're not familiar with that story, 
It comes out of Genesis chapter 4, just the fourth book of the Bible. It's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel, who were the sons of Adam and Eve, as in the Adam and the Eve. Cain worked the soil. Abel took care of livestock, his younger brother, Abel. But one day, they both come to the Lord with offerings to the Lord. That, in the the ancient Near East, was a way of expressing their devotion or their heart to God. But Abel comes and brings his best offering to the Lord. But Cain, on the other hand, brings a stingy offering that costs him very little. God accepts Abel's and rejects Cain's because he sees their hearts. And because God accepted Abel's and rejected Cain's, jealousy consumed Cain, which then turned into hatred. And when he was alone with his brother, Cain murdered Abel in the field. Now, our first reaction is, that's brutal, right? But I don't do that, right? So we're good. But again, John means us to ask, not just what did Cain do, but what drove him? What was the heart that led to that moment? See, Cain represents that restless, calculating drive to serve ourselves above all. That drive in human nature that is always asking, what can I get out of this? What can I gain from this? That like Abel, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. But unlike Abel, Cain was thinking, what what is calculating? What is the bare minimum I can bring to God to get the most from God? But when God blessed his brother instead, Cain, out of this sense of entitlement and anger and jealousy, took his brother's life. So even though in the beginning they both looked the same, words and appearances all the same, Cain, underneath it all, lived for himself. But that restless drive to to feed and live for ourselves is not something we learn. It's something in our nature. I mean, as a parent, I guess I'm always just amazed at how, again, I have have sweet kids, but I'm, I'm amazed, like, I don't have to teach them how to think about themselves. But nearly every single day, I'm trying to referee because they're only thinking about themselves. But it's not just my kids. Like, I see it in myself. As a husband, I do chores around the house because I'm lightening the load for Shelby. She gets home, and if she doesn't notice and thank me, I'm like, what gives? I get resentful. But then that leads me to ask, was I doing it for her or was I doing it for me? And like Cain, when we don't get what we want, or what we think we deserve, how do we respond? Because that often shows who we're living for. But on the flip side, if you want to see what love truly is, John says, look at the self-sacrifice of Jesus. And that instead of giving us a definition of love, John just says, you want to know what love is? Look at the one true Savior who is love in the flesh. If Cain is the opposite, then Christ is the ultimate standard. He says, this is how you know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And that word laid down there is the same word that John in chapter 13 used to describe when Jesus took off his outer cloak and laid it down before he washed his disciples' feet. Same idea. 
laid it down. And I will be as bold as to say that we can't really know what love is apart from Jesus. Because only he showed us what it looks like to completely love another. Because if anyone had the right to life, it was the sinless son of God. Yet for your sin and mine, he gave his life as a ransom for us. The armies of heaven were at his command, but he allowed instead the jealous Cain-like priests and Pharisees and Romans to publicly crucify him. So if love is a feeling, then I don't, I don't get it. Because for Jesus, clearly, love was not a feeling. He sat in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified, and God has said, if there's any other way, please take it from me. But instead, his love was a commitment to give us life, even at the cost of his own. If the opposite of love is to take life, then the picture of love is to give it for another. And Jesus loves you so much that no glory of heaven, no price tag, no comforts are more important than your salvation and calling you his own. Do you see that? And if the life of Christ is in you, the next, John says, his love will start coming out of you. Because instead of the old way of living for ourselves, we should begin to love like Jesus does. But here comes the rub. Because it's easy to love the idea of love, but it's not real until we put it into action. Go back to the verse 16 there. It says, how do we know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we praise God for that. We receive that. We celebrate that. No one loves like Jesus. But, but let's not forget that second part. When he follows right in there, he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And some of us are looking at this verse and saying, can we just go back to the first half? Maybe. But whoever put the verse numbers in here, like, they didn't turn this into two verses. And I think this was on purpose. Because they wanted to say the first half, you can't have the first half without the second half. And the second half doesn't say, he laid down his life for us so we ought to just love each other too. Because if it was vague like that, we might be able to just interpret love however we wanted to. But no, he says, he laid down his, so we laid down ours. That the same word again, Used to describe Jesus, he laid aside his cloak to wash stinky feet. He laid aside his life on a blood-stained cross. He uses that same word to describe how we are to love each other. And that word leaves no wiggle room for self-serving motivations or for, for, for twisted, uh, twisted hearts in this. But if we truly have received that first half, then we can't help but be transformed by it, beginning in our own hearts. And we realize from what John is saying that learning to love begins with the person next to us on a daily basis. You know, back in the day when John wrote this, it would have been read publicly to the churches that gathered because of illiteracy and lack of books and scrolls most of the time, they would hear God's word just by reading it. And so the first time they hear it, I imagine them getting to this verse saying, we ought to lay down our lives for each other. And the church is going, 
oh, he means you, <laughs> and, and you, and you. This is not a vague idea. This is each other. If we want to love like Jesus, where do we start? Well, who's next to you? Who shares your house? Who shares your space? Because that's when love gets real. There's a famous novel, uh, Brothers Karamazov, uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And there's a character in that novel that just, I don't know, every time I read this quote, it just, it gets me. He says, at one point, and he describes a lot of us, he says, The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity, some great cause, and perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. Does that not resonate with with you guys? Maybe you've seen the t-shirt, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand, right? But John knows that if we just talk about loving humanity in the abstract or loving it as an idea, man, it's easy to wiggle right out of that. But he says, no, no, no. Loving people is meant to be concrete, personal, specific. That he says in verse 17, he says, if anybody has extra means and you see a brother or sister in need and you have no pity, no compassion on them, he says, is the love of God in them? Or John adds that he says love's not real until it's lived out in action. And we see Jesus didn't just come talking about sacrifice. He became a sacrifice. And so loving like Jesus is a daily commitment to give ourselves for each other, for each other's best. Now to clarify, love is not enabling someone's dysfunction. Because it's not seeking somebody's best just to keep allowing them to operate in their dysfunction and walk all over you. All right? Sometimes people call that, that's not love. That's not your best or their best. But as John said, love begins by one, seeing. Seeing our spouse, seeing our kids, seeing our friends, seeing the person near you. And by seeing them, you're seeking to understand their need. That as Christ sees us and meets us where we are, so do we learn to see each other. Shelby and I have this phrase in our house a lot. Like when when, when we're busy, when we're doing a lot, and even if we can't like give a lot of our time to help, sometimes we'll just say, hey, I see you. I see you. Just as a way of saying like, I'm aware. But then number two, then love asks after we see, what has God given me? that I can give to you to meet that need. Not just seeing, but what has God given me that I might be able to give to you to meet that need? Even if I have to face a fear of rejection, even if I I don't like that people get into my personal space, even if I have this need to relax, like, like first, 
Is there something God has given me that I can give to you? And see, this is why I say love gets tough. Because love goes directly against that self-serving impulse. But that's also when the love of Christ gets real to people around us. Let me say something real quick. Like if, if you're somebody in here and you're looking for a spouse, I want to say, does that person you're dating, does that significant other, do, do you notice that they have the ability to love you like Jesus? Please don't settle for less than that. And if you're somebody who you want to be married one day, first, are you learning to love like Jesus with just those who are already around you? And for those who are married, how well do you see your spouse? Do you know what it looks like to seek God's best for your spouse? Take those questions and pray through them. But see, once we see what it means to love one another like Jesus, we realize it's tough. And honestly, it's exposing. And like I described earlier from my own experience, I can, once I see how, how selfish I can be or how mixed my motives are, I sometimes wonder, like, do I even know Jesus at all? Because how many times have I tried to, to love somebody or serve somebody, but in the end I turn around and I realize, oh, it was really just because I wanted them to think I was awesome. But those are subtle motivations that we realize, man, i got a long way to go when it comes to loving the way that Jesus does. And sometimes when I see that gap between my ability and Jesus, that inner critic in my mind gets quite loud. But along the way, I've realized something. And John says it too, that loving others like Jesus is practically impossible until we can receive his love for us. That like that character from Brothers Karamazov, when love isn't just an idea or an abstract cause, but when loving people gets specific and personal, we start to realize that it's challenging. And when I've not served my wife and my kids like Jesus, sometimes our own hearts can begin to condemn us. That when we realize that we've hurt somebody because we've been selfish, it's easy to start beating ourselves up about it. And then we can take the disappointment we feel in ourselves, project it on God, and assume that he's disappointed in us too, and that he condemns us. And from that, we begin to keep our distance from God until we can make ourselves feel good enough again, or the inner critic grows quiet a bit. But what John wants us to see here is that when we don't love like Jesus, God meets you there, but not as a judge, but as a father. As a father. So John again, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Our hearts, or some people call it our conscience, or some people call it the, the inner critic, says a lot of things to us, but it doesn't always get it right, everybody. But God knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows the true inner workings of your hearts and even still, he says, it is by faith in Christ and what he's done that he calls you his own, his son or his daughter. That even when we are selfish and we act like jerks and we don't love well, that still doesn't change who we are if we have faith in Christ. 
And that even when we don't love well, we can come to God and know we meet him not as a judge, but as a perfect father. We sometimes think it's godly to beat ourselves up after we do something wrong. But do you realize beating yourself up is still self-focus? No, God's desire, John says, is that our hearts would rest in his presence. And he says that even he says if our hearts don't condemn us, he says then we can have confidence before God. And if we have confidence before God, verse 22, he says, then we can bring our aches, our hurts, our failures, our guilt, we can bring it all to him. You know, like I said earlier, nearly every day I got to play referee for my kids as they're trying to figure out how do they love well. But even though I play referee, that, that doesn't keep me from loving them. I want them to realize their sin, but also receive my love still. And if that's how I, a flawed human dad, feel, how much more will your Father in heaven want you to still receive and know his love even when we come up short? And that as children of God, we're not always going to love like Jesus, but that's not a reason to move away from God in shame, but that's a reason to move closer. And that learning to lay down our lives for each other involves also learning to lay down our burdens with our Father. And this is important because many of us, we have a tough time actually seeing somebody else because we are so distracted by our own anxieties, our own fears, our own guilt, our own preoccupations, our own burdens, you name it. And we think that we got to carry all of these things on our own, which leaves us no space in ourselves to actually receive God's love or have capacity to love someone else. So I want to ask, what are you carrying if you were honest, is your heart at rest in God's presence? If he wants you to come to him with the confidence of a child by faith in Christ, then you can confess these things. You can name them, let go of them. And we let go not because they aren't important, but because we can trust our Father with them. And you notice that when we're done with that, now our hands are open to receive his love. And once we receive it, we have something to give to somebody else. So once we learn to trust these things, then our hearts can rest. And from that state of rest, his love settles on you. You know, I've heard a lot in my life you should, you should receive God's love. And I never really knew what that meant. And I have a hard time knowing, well, what do I do? How do you receive God's love? Well, I've, I've experienced this is one of the most powerful ways. That when we lay down our burdens in prayer with the confidence of a child with his father, then we are free to receive and then to give to the brother or sister next to us. That as we learn to rest in Jesus' love for us, we naturally grow to love each other. So like we said at the very beginning of this passage, we should love one another. 
No one's arguing with John there. But if we ran out of here and you tried to love each other in our own strength or based on our mere feelings, we're ultimately going to be like a tree trying to sprout out fruit that doesn't even have its roots in the ground. But that's right. That's why as a church, our vision statement is first rooted in Jesus and then growing together. Because it is only from being rooted in God's love for you that we are then able to then love each other. Because every attempt to love others like Jesus will fail without Jesus. And don't get me wrong. We can, we can try real hard. We can do nice things. We can try to love with all of our energy, but eventually we will burn out. We get irritable. We get resentful. Why aren't they changing? Why can't they see me? Why does no one appreciate me? We do good things, but then all of a sudden our motives become quite mixed. But the love of Christ begins to naturally flow from us as we allow his love to sink into those dry, shame-filled parts of our souls. And so this week, there was a moment when I was just spending time with God, got up, the house was quiet, kids were still sleeping. And as I was thinking through all of this, I was like, Lord, I, I want to receive your love. But in, this, in that moment, I think it was God speaking to me, this thought came to my mind. That his love is rarely like rain and more often like dew. Meaning. Oftentimes we say, I receive your love. We expect this quick downfall right on our souls. Boom, right? And sometimes he does that. But I found more often than not, it's more like the way that dew settles on the grass. That sometimes we have to be still long enough. We have to just be present to God, laying down our burdens, confessing these things. And then slowly but surely you begin to feel his love Settle upon your heart. But if we're always in a hurry, if we're always distracted, if we're always trying to hold all these things on our own, oftentimes we won't sit still long enough to let the dew of his love settle on those dry places in our souls. And when we can rest in Jesus' love, we naturally grow to love each other. And so I want to take a moment right now Instead of just whizzing right into the next song, I want to take a moment for just to let the love of the Lord settle on you. If you could, just where you are, close your eyes. Oftentimes, closing our eyes, it just helps us to focus. But if you don't like that, if that makes you feel nervous, that's fine. Open your eyes. That's fine. But my thing is, I want you to be able to focus for a moment. And ask yourself honestly, or ask God, honestly. He knows you better than you know yourself. God, is my heart at rest? Is my heart at rest? If the honest answer is yes, then just take this moment and just receive his love for you. But if the honest answer is no, then I want you to say, why God? Are there anxieties, responsibilities, people, shame? anything else that's coming to your mind that is causing your heart to not be at rest? If so, then I want you to cast those things onto God. Just admit them, Just again, just you and God, and hand them to him. This is how we learn to let go.
This is how we learn to know who our Father really is. How much He loves you. The one who laid down His life for you says, lay down your burdens before Him. And as things you may want to ask Him, God, I need you to work in this situation. God, I need you to intervene. Just take a moment, just you and God, lay those things down. If you've confessed, again, take this moment just to thank him for the ways that he has loved you. Practical, specific, personal, concrete love of Christ for you. Lord, I pray in this moment that your love, like dew on the grass, will settle upon each of our hearts in this room. That it would sink down into the dry places of our souls, maybe the places we've been trying to manage all on our own, the things we've been trying to carry, the anxieties, the anger, the bitterness. May your love sink down and give life again to those places within us. Lord, thank you that you always see us, that you know us even better than we know ourselves. And thank you that the resources of heaven you gave us everything you had by coming in the flesh, dying on a cross, rising again, that we might be called yours and we might be forever forgiven. So Holy Spirit, make your love real to everybody in this room. Even if it doesn't come as a feeling, may it come as a reality. In Jesus' name. Amen.